Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Mizell, and my friend Nick Tarasio is joining me today. He is the CEO of Ventura Air and the author of On Your Own Plane, It Costs Less Than You Think. Nick, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So, I mean, obviously, I know your background of this, but I think it's worth people understanding some context is what drew you to aviation in the first place? So I grew up around it, one of those fortunate people that turned out to be passionate about the environment I was surrounded by. But specifically, I think the first experience was when I was four years old. I remember getting into an airplane in New York and it was cold out. And then I got out and it was warm. And the next thing I knew, I was at Disney World. So I think I anchored very early on that airplanes are a tool for creating amazing experiences with people that you care about. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people listening probably know because I've mentioned it before, but I, I also have a pilot's license. And for me, it was like Top Gun. The movie Top Gun essentially is what got me into flight. So yours is a way, it was a way better story. Um, so I don't know. Top Gun's a pretty good movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought I wanted to be a naval aviator for a little while, but then glad that didn't work out actually. So what does Ventura Air do now? Our biggest focus, I mean, really kind of the high level is we really make private aviation possible for people on whatever front that means. So it's whether you want to own your own plane and you didn't think you could afford it, whether it's you just want to charter an airplane from A to B so there's no commitment. And if you already own a plane and you want to have it fixed and serviced and upgraded, we kind of can pimp your ride. So we do kind of all sides of that. And then in terms of the book itself, so I mean, I think the title probably surprising some people, right? Like why? I think a lot of people probably associate owning a plane with luxury and probably something that's out of reach. So why is that not true? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's again, I I grew up in a middle class family and it seemed like there was this elite club of people that, and I I shouldn't even say elite because it's, it really was just that they knew, they knew there was a group of people that knew, and you obviously know this a little bit too, is that everyone thinks like I need to have, uh, you know, a G6 and be, uh, you know, be Jay-Z to be able to own a jet. But in reality, there's all these other options, everything from the $15,000 airplane all the way up to, you know, the $300,000 jet. So there's a lot of other options that people never really knew about. And I noticed that people around me were always like, man, one day I hope I can afford that. And often I was like, you actually can afford it today if you want to. And I just said, you know, maybe it's time just to write the book. So what is some of the things that get real in the book in terms of like, what makes it so more surprisingly affordable to people? And again, I, so we, I've owned a, a small plane, so I do understand in terms of like operating and stuff, but I guess let's go into like, why would somebody want to own a plane other than the cool factor? Obviously there's a lot of utility to it. And then what makes it more affordable than they might think? So there's a lot of different aspects to that. One, the reason why they might want to own it is There's just, again, I think people work really hard, especially in the entrepreneurial circles. I know a lot of people that work really hard to create a certain quality of life. And I think that the number one thing I hear from entrepreneurs that complain is around schedule, is around like, hey, I work really hard. I have such limited time. The airlines are unreliable. I hate when, you know, when I want to to go on vacation with my family, I just want to have a good experience. And often the experience of traveling commercially can ruin that or just, you know, the bookends of the experience are really terrible. So I think that that's something that people aspire to. Like I just, I became an entrepreneur because I value freedom and I value control of my schedule. And the ultimate tool to do that is an airplane. So I think it's, you know, obviously everyone, not everyone, but most people would like to have the desk model when someone does a meeting and say, what's that? Oh, that's my jet, right? That's cool. But really at the end of the day, it is about that quality of life. It is about that freedom. So this idea that you need, 
again, a massive jet to be able to pull that off, I think is where the misnomer starts. And what I found was that when I really started to spend time with people and say, let's get clear on your mission. Once we understand your mission, I can tell you that you probably don't need, you know, a jet that'll fly to Paris. You might not even need a jet. You might need a smaller prop plane or a medium-sized turboprop or something to that effect. So it's really kind of matching the mission to what airplanes are out there. And then, and again, you know, this people are, their minds are blown when I say, how much do you think it costs me to park my plane, you know, outside of Boston for the night? And they're like, I don't know, $150. It's $10, typically $10 a night or $15 a night. So I think people are blown away by all these little expenses that come around it. It's like, man, I couldn't park my car in Manhattan for that much. Well, yeah. And another thing that always is funny to me is how at least the last time I filled up a plane, the gas was like two to three times more expensive than filling up a car. But of course you're getting, you know, like a high multiple in terms of mileage out of it. Exactly. Uh, So that really resonates thing about time because one of the things, so there's two sides of this. One is that I have clients, I have friends who travel a lot and they don't, like if you actually ask them how much you think it costs, and they probably haven't even thought about it. They know how much the ticket is. But I've had a couple of friends who work by coastal and they spend $150,000 a year on airfare. So it's a significantly large portion of what they spend money on anyway. And then the other thing is that, as you said, that time factor. So my flight preferences are very simple with uh, any VA service or any you know person I'm working with. Essentially, I want to be away from home as little as possible. So that means that I have done double red eye flights to go to LA before. And that's totally fine with me. But there's so many times where it's like, Oh God, I just wish there was a flight that like took off at midnight, you know? (laughs) And it's a totally legitimate thing. And third thing on that, before I turn it back to you, is that if you think about commuting as a pain point for most people, if you can turn commuting into something that is not a pain point, meaning that on your commute, you could work or sleep, or whatever, then living farther away from a city center or a place where you might normally have an office actually becomes a lot more realistic and okay. So you can actually end up affording a larger place with more land, you know, and it's okay to live farther away if you can then have the the commute figured out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's even for me. I mean, I, I live in Manhattan and I reverse commute to Long Island and people always ask, do I drive? And I go, absolutely not. I sit on the train so I could get work done. And I think that airplanes are, you know, you have kind of your go-go Wi-Fi and you try to get stuff done, but they've been pretty, it's the, the physical toll on your body, the inability to focus. There's a lot of stuff that comes into that. When you have more of a controlled environment, you're like, wow, this is extremely productive time. If I have some reason that I need to stay a little bit longer, there's a potential for a meeting or a prospect or even just visiting a friend. And I have total control of saying, let's push back the flight three hours and nothing's going to happen. Yeah, right. And then, I mean, this is this is a luxury example, but I have a friend who was working in a hedge fund and his family was in Montauk for the summer and he was commuting every day by helicopter to the city to work. Wow. But, which is obviously that's expensive and that's, uh, that's an extreme version. But at the same time, that's a solution that enabled him to spend actual time with his family and be right. there with them. Because uh, most of the people that I know in that situation see their family on the weekends when their family is out you know, in the Hamptons for the summer kind of thing. So the biggest idea from this for me is that a lot of times, and I see this obviously in the work that I do in general with uh, helping people with their time, is that there, you sometimes have to really think outside the box in terms of what will actually help you achieve that goal. So I love the fact that you know, we're talking about what some people might just minimize to transportation, and you're talking about you know, what is the goal and how do we align that with like, how we achieve that? Because some people might not think like, oh, well, I can't do this because the airlines don't do it and I can't afford a private jet. So I'm not going to be able to take advantage of this opportunity. 
Exactly. And I think also, you know, again, going back to what you said about kind of getting to the mission, there's a lot of other stuff that comes into play of ownership, right? It's like often it's people care about family and friends. And, and the idea of saying, you know, not only am I going to consider it uh, a necessary evil of having to go from point A to point B, because like no one really wants to travel, right? If you could snap your fingers today, if I gave you a tool or I said, here, press the button and you could be where you need to be, you wouldn't go on an airplane no matter how nice it is, right? So right. the idea of saying, well, hey, what if not only I'm not only I'm getting there in more of a controlled fashion, but I'm also creating a, an amazing experience for the people I care about, and that that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is growing up and having a dad who flew and being on planes with them. Like I have these amazing experiences, you know, with my family where we bonded in the airplanes and we did really cool things. Like, hey, on the way to Florida, let's stop at this crazy ribs place in North Carolina that we heard about. So it's like really creating those one in a million, like really unique opportunities to share an experience. And that's, again, like that's the stuff people aren't thinking about. They're just like transportation, just transportation. Like, absolutely not. It's, it's an amazing richness. It's like someone giving you a paintbrush versus a painting, right? The airlines give you a painting, which is kind of like one of those Hilton flower paintings where you're like, all right, I've seen this crap before. And we're saying, here's a paintbrush. You can create something really extraordinary. I like that. I mean, and also the truth is, if you look back historically at air travel, commercial air travel, it really was not even a luxury thing. It was a, it was supposed to be like a major experience. You know, the big like DC-10 prop planes, you know, had like bedrooms and four course meals. And yeah. it was an experience just like train travel was too. And they become very utilitarian. So, well, okay. So let's talk about the business itself though now. So like, what are some of the things that you're, because I've seen you, I've done you for years now, I've seen you go through a lot of different growing pains and also if interesting sort of obstacles that I feel like you've overcome very well. What are some of the challenges that you see in growing the business that you're at now? Probably the hardest thing is um, sort of loose mentor of mine on the back of his door. He's a professor at NYU. He says on the, on the back of his door, there's a chart that plots the sexiness of a business versus the profitability. And I realize that when you're in a very, very sexy business, there is usually not profit, right? It's a, it, like I'm in an industry that after people make their $500 million exit in finance, they decide to get a jet and start a jet company because it's fun and it's awesome and it's really cool to have that lifestyle. So it's like, uh, how do you build a business in an extremely biased industry where there's not always a profit motive with our competition? So I'd say that that's really been the biggest challenge. So we really had to get super clear on, you know, at first we were a charter company. Actually, at first we were just an anything aviation company. Then we're just a charter company. Like people go, where do you fly? We go anywhere. I think now we've had to get clearer and clearer. And I've heard this a thousand times from business coaches and from consultants. They're like, hey, you got to figure out what your blue ocean is. Like you got to figure out what your little niche is. And we just took way too long to do that. It, I, I never really got clear on like, okay, we had to figure out who we are, what we do and what is defensible. So first of all, I, some people are probably not familiar with the blue ocean term. So how do you, what do you mean in this context? It means that, you know, it's like kind of like cutting out your little space. Like there's a, you know, it's a massive ocean out there. It's a massive, you know, private jets are a huge market. And often I've heard people in the industry say it's really hard to compete. It's super hard to compete. It's like, yeah, it's true. It's hard to compete to be everything. But there is some little area of the ocean out there that you could carve out for yourself and say, this is my space. This is what I do. And this is what I'm the best at. And then people will hopefully say, hey, if I'm a customer that needs that specific thing that you do, you guys are clearly number one at that. And what's that niche become for you? So for us, we realized that at the end of the day, we are three things really, we're good at three things specifically that are hard to replicate. We have incredible maintenance support. So we can take older equipment, you know, we could take jets from the 80s that might be traditionally considered unreliable and they don't have great parts support. And they don't have great, you know, um, um, manufacturer support. 
we could keep them really, you know, we could keep them current, we could keep them looking new, and we could keep them extremely reliable. So we can go out and buy very, very depreciated assets, make them new, make them awesome. And then we have an incredible sales team as well that does really active marketing of those planes. So we're outperforming. Some people have jets from, you know, 2015, and we're, we're putting more hours on our jets from 1985 than they are on those planes. And our dispatch reliability is as if it's a brand new airplane. So the example would be this. If you want to go buy a mid-sized jet today, it's $12 million off the line. So you go to Cessna, you buy yourself a brand new citation, it's 12 million bucks. We're buying mid-sized jets for about $400,000. Wow. So it's a massive arbitrage, right? And then we're saying our mindset is like, typically the whole jet space is about luxury, luxury, luxury. You want the newest, best, biggest. And we're saying, no, that's actually not true. There are some very wealthy people that still care about utility and value. So we, we never compromise safety, but we say, look, why would you spend $12 million when you could get the same utility, the same range, the same speed, the same cabin size, the Wi-Fi, the bathroom, all that stuff for $400,000. Well, you know, it's funny about that. And this might be too specific for some people, but you know, like the Honda jet is one of the you know newer classier ones, right? The Citation and the G5, the G6, everyone knows about those. But the Learjet like was the classic sort of private jet for a long time. And if you like Pretty Woman, they flew in a Learjet, you know, like that was like the image of a private jet in the eighties at least. But exactly. I, and you have, I assume you have Learjets, right? That's correct. Yeah. And it's a great plane. It's almost like it's still a private jet. It's just maybe not the coolest, best. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, when you're in any ecosystem, there's kind of a definition of cool, right? There's like, oh, I have the Mercedes or I have the whatever car that's the hottest brand at that time. So for people that don't really know the ins and outs of the airplanes, all they can trust is brand equity. Right. Like what, right. what's in rap songs? What does everyone that has money buy? Again, we're super educated on the ins and outs of everything. We fly and we fix and we know what's there. And we're looking purely from a data standpoint. What has the maximum utility for the dollar spend? And that's actually what we do. Well, and now another side of this too, because I'm sure this is a question that's coming up and people listening to this right now is like, is a plane from, I mean, obviously you have standards that you're meeting, but is a plane from the eighties really safe? You know, doesn't that ever make people nervous that there might be some unknown thing that you're not covering? Yeah, I mean, it's, first of all, it's a great question. I think that's the conversation that allows new plane manufacturers to keep selling airplanes, right? Yeah. They're like, old, old planes are unsafe. You got to stay away from them. But in reality, when you look at the airlines, you're probably flying on planes in some cases from the late 70s, early 80s. And those planes have, to give some context, anywhere from 50 to 80,000 hours on them. Whereas our jets, even some of the craziest, most used charter jets from the 80s have about 10,000 hours. 11,000 hours on them. And they're all maintained to these incredible standards. The engines are overhauled. The avionics are upgraded. The planes are inspected with x-rays every certain amount of years. I mean, if you really understood the minutia of what's and the level of rigor that these planes go through, you'd be like, man, it's basically, I mean, I have 100% certainty that that the planes I'm flying on are safe. I didn't know that they inspect them with x-rays. That's pretty cool. Um, So it's a great point. And it's an incredible as you said, arbitrage that you found these opportunities because again, and so I want to put this in a bigger context for people too in their own entrepreneurial journeys is that you're dealing in an industry where things are kind of done a certain way and they always are done a certain way, but you've been able to find this very interesting opportunity. Well, so like if you say like in one of the industry problems is that the margins are not very high and you got to just keep flying and keep flying and you're basically, so most people would say like you just have to fly more, but in your case, you're going out and finding depreciated asset and fixing it. I think it's a really brilliant angle. I appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. And it's, it's, it's funny because I think this is also interesting when you look at business, right? I, for years I said, man, I kind of stepped into the business when we already had these older assets. And, you know, sometimes people say the thing about old planes, I wouldn't want to fly on them. I'm like, man, look at this problem I've inherited. What's really a big like macro learning for me is that all the problems I inherited were actually our strengths. I just didn't know it at the time. 
great. Okay, so then what was sort of the turning point for you to realize that? I think the biggest turning point was I'd worked with a bunch of business coaches and I brought in this kind of, it was an outside management team that I brought in just, it was an old friend from Entrepreneurs Organization. And I said, you know, here's all the things we're doing. We had the flight school at the time and we had all these different businesses we were doing. And he was like, well, what makes you the most money? I mean, it was really just, you know, I grew up in a business that was a family business. So there's a lot of emotionality as a justification for what we do. And he's like, well, let's strip the emotion away and just look purely from a standpoint of P&L. And essentially the thing that I thought was the biggest problem actually made us the most money. And he's like, good, let's just replicate that over and over again and let's stop doing the other things. So what were some of the things you had to stop doing? The flight school was hard. We had to, we had to shut that down. Just because, again, I mean, from scale, it's like a, a flight school airplane goes out and makes us $12 an hour. A Learjet goes out and it's in multiples of thousands. So it's the same amount of effort to deal with a plane that flew to East Hampton and it got cold and I couldn't start the engine. Can you come out here and start the plane for me? It was like, man, that, we just blew an hour for $12. Wow. But and I can, of course, see the emotional aspect of that, right? Because you're giving people the gift of knowing how to fly. Exactly. I mean, that was, that was why I was drawn to it. Because I could say, I mean, we really changed people's lives as, as a flight school. I mean, you take someone who never knew that they could fly their own airplane. And next thing you know, they're like, man, I take my family to college and I, I get my business meetings. I'm flying myself around. I see myself in a different way. I have confidence in who I am as a person. I mean, like, that's, a, that's a big statement when I've had people tell me that. But I had to get really clear on if I'm not making a lot of money at it, it really is just a hobby. And that was a really difficult thing to kind of parse out in my own mind. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, and also just a sort of personal anecdote for me, I, I actually credit learning to fly with an enormous amount of my ability to sort of manage stress with a lot of different inputs happening at the same time. Yeah. And as much as I, I've actually, whenever I talk and I say how multitasking does not exist, which it really doesn't, and like the closest thing to it is pretty much flying where you're monitoring six instruments, working your feet, looking for traffic, talking to people on the radio. Like, that's about as close as it gets to true multitasking. So what's the future look like then for you, for the company? I think for us, the biggest thing has been getting clear on those other models that make sense and just scaling that out. So right now what we're doing is we're going out and building a big fleet of these Lear jets, and then we're looking at a couple other larger jets. Like right now we're mostly flying north-south, so it'd be New York or the northeast down to Florida, the Caribbean, that kind of stuff. Right now our next move is to start launching New York West Coast, and then we're looking at potentially short-circuiting that and doing New York to Western Europe. So we're just kind of playing with some different ideas, but recognizing that as long as we play within our, our defensible strengths, we have some real opportunity. So we're building the business models now to look at it. Well, okay. So then I have a question about that, actually, because it, I mean, it is somewhat specific to your business, but it is important in terms of scaling at like how the, uh, the magnitudes at which somebody scales. So going from you know, north-south in the US to going from like across the ocean to Europe, does that significantly need, like, do you have a, a very different need for equipment in that case? I mean, I guess a Learjet could stop in Iceland, right? But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's totally different. I mean, we are talking yeah. about, you know, the Gulf streams and some of the bigger equipment, right, but again, okay. it, it's not the, it's not the G five fifties or anything like that. We're looking at the older models from the eighties and nineties and saying, again, great utility and just with really wonderful or really, um, they have wonderful support. They have wonderful parts available on the market. It's just about knowing how to navigate that. So, and again, this is also specific, but I'm just curious. So it's just about range, right? That's the only thing that matters in that situation. You just need planes that can do the range. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the range of the airplane determines what market they can serve, but it's also, I mean, it's all this, it's the cost economics of the airplane itself. How much fuel does it burn? Like they have some Gulf streams that'll make Europe, but when you look at the way that the engines are super inefficient, they're from the seventies and they burn about, I mean, they burn I think the number is like 400 gallons an hour or 500 gallons an hour, where some of the newer ones might burn more like 300 gallons an hour. So that's a big, you know, you'd say, okay, I could do it, but I can't ever make it make money. 
I could never yeah. find a way to be competitive because as newer, obviously as new efficiencies come out, there is a certain turning point where you're saying newer is better. And we're always looking at where did the technology shift and what's the oldest piece of equipment in that category? Gotcha. Ah, that, oh, that's very cool too. That's a really cool way to look at it. All right. Well, so the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. Hmm. So I'll tell you what's been most relevant for me for the last couple of months. And the number one, and this has been beaten to me for years is just focus, whatever it is. I mean, it's just the idea of like pick one thing and just do that thing really well Two calendar. I'm really, really big on my calendar and my calendar is sacred. And uh, I know you talk a lot about this action. You've been a big yeah. contributor in, in how I look at calendars, but I think I put everything in my calendar, make sure the personal stuff goes in the calendar too. Otherwise life goes out of balance. And I would say number three, probably vulnerability. Actually, that's been a big lesson for me over the last year is don't hold everything so close to the chest, really put yourself out there, take some chances. And it's amazing how many people step up to support you and to kind of give you what you need when you're willing to really go deep and ask for it. Those are pretty good. I like that. All right. Well, so Nick, thank you. Where can people find out more about Ventura and of course buy the book and we'll have links in the show notes, but what's the best place to find out more? Absolutely. You could go to ownyourownplane.com and you could also check out uh, our Ventura website, which is ventura.aero, A-E-R-O. Awesome, Nick. Thank you. Cool, man. Thanks so much. Hey, we each only have 24 hours in a day, right? Why not make yours more productive so you can focus on amplifying your unique abilities? Join us over at the Less Doing Labs. It's a free, exclusive community filled with tips, tricks, and tools to multiply your efficiency. Just sign up at lessdoinglabs.com slash 24 hours. That's lessdoinglabs.com slash 24 hours.